Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we want to turn once again to the book of James. As most of you know, we are preaching through this book. This is the book that we have chosen. It is a book that deals in the main with what we're going to call true or pure religion. We get that from verse 27 of chapter 1. And so, James's overall theme is what does it mean to have true religion? What does true religion consist of? And thus far we have seen that true religion will be tested. We see that in particular from beginning in verse 2 all the way down through verse 15. Uh, but we need to realize, as James tells us here, when we're tempted, it's not God to, with evil. It's not God who tempts us to evil. That is our own lust and our own sins. And so James here then is giving us some of the wherewithal of all of this. And he goes on to say also that true religion consists of the new birth. No one will be have no one will have true religion, no one will enter heaven if they are not born again. And James tells us in verse seventeen that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and of course that one of those good gifts is the new birth. And so we are very thankful that God has caused us to be born again. And so James has been dealing with this issue and some of the ramifications around what it means to be born again and some of the fruits of the new birth. And so we're going to be looking at some of these things today. Let me begin reading with verse uh, 17, and we'll go down through verse 21. And actually, verse 21 is my text, but let's just back up just a bit to pick up some of the context. Verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. As I said, my text is verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Well, from the doctrine and from the reality of the new birth, which is experienced by the people of God that is in our lives, James has taught us three immediate things that should be followed. He tells us that in verse 19. What are some things that should follow in the new birth? What are some things that we ought to be doing, or for that matter, not be doing, when it comes to being born again? How do we act in some of the very first principles of being saved? Well, he tells us in verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be what? Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And then he's so gracious here in verse 20, he tells us why. The reason why we ought to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and in particular to slow to wrath, is because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In other words, if we have sinful wrath about us, and that's what's leading us, that's what's governing us, that's what we're about, then this doesn't produce the fruits of righteousness. In fact, rather, it will produce the sins of the flesh. 
So in the encouragement here or the exhortation that he gives us from the doctrine of the new birth, those of us who have been born again, remember there in verse 18, of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. Well then, one of the three of the things that we ought to be following is we ought to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now just a quick observation, which I'm going to turn into a question. We, know, we preached that last week, did we not? Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. My question is this morning, as way of an application or as an observation, is this. How many this past week made a conscious effort in these areas? How many of us here thought through the week, I need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath? I don't want to see any hands. But as a way of just reinforcing what we spoke about last week, how many of us here have seriously and conscientiously and with a principled heart and mind said in some way, some fashion throughout this week, I need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Wouldn't it be good if we could all, if we did that sort of thing, we all could raise our hands and say, yes, I did that. I was constantly and consistently, I had this on my mind, the Word of God was working in my heart all last week, and I was diligently trying to put on these things to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Well, again, I don't want to know if you did or you did not. The point of that is, these are things we certainly need to be thinking about. I don't stand up here after several hours of study all week just to hopefully get it done, go home, and then hope everybody forgets everything that's ever been spoken up here. I want us to assimilate this stuff uh, from the preaching and obviously strive to apply these things in our lives. So, some of the immediate then outworking or some of the immediate exhortations of the new birth then ought to be these things here. Three things here. Swift to hear. Slow to speak, I need to slow down, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Well, those are the things, brethren, we should be putting into practice. Now, James doesn't stop here, though, does he? He goes on. We see from verse 21 that James makes further application, or we could say he draws some further exhortations from these ideas that he just spoke upon. And he gives us basically two exhortations in verse 21. One is in the negative. One of the exhortations. And the other one is in the positive. Look at it again in verse 21. Wherefore, that is based on what he just got through saying, the fact of the new birth, the fact that there are some things that we ought to be doing in light of the new birth. What's that? Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? Because these things don't work, or the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. Therefore, wherefore then, do this. And the first things he tells us there is in the negative. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. So, again, one of the exhortations that flows from the context of what Peter or James is saying here is, is that we're to lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And you say, what does that mean? Filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Well, the commentators are divided on the particular sins that are mentioned here. Some say that, that these are separate things. That is, you're to put away all the filthiness, and then you're to put away the superfluity of naughtiness. The word superfluity means like an overabundance of it. So you're to do away with naughtiness. Now, 
The word naughtiness, we think of it today as like some child who's been maybe gotten into something that he shouldn't. A kind of a naughty child. But that's not what it meant in uh, 17th century English. The word there means something that was really wicked, uh, like malice, hatred, envy, that sort of thing. So, if someone was naughty in the 17th century, that meant they were really bad. And it goes along with the context, obviously, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Some have looked at it that way. There's filthiness we ought to be putting away, and then the superabundance of the naughtiness there that's there. Or... They're saying basically it expresses the same thing. In other words, the word filthiness there and the word superfluity modifies the naughtiness. In other words, the filthiness of naughtiness and the superfluity of naughtiness. Well, let me quote you Gill. This is what he says. He says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness. And he means here, all manner of filthiness, both of flesh and of spirit, all pride, vanity, wrath, malice, and evil speaking, under the hearing the word. In other words, so he sees it back again to the context of dealing with the word of God. The illusion seems to be to a boiling pot, which casts up scum and filth, which must be taken off, and such is the spirit of wrathful men. It throws up the filth of haughtiness and pride, of anger, wrath, and wickedness which must be taken off and laid aside, or the word would not be heard to any profit or advantage. And he goes on to the second phrase, and superfluity of naughtiness, or malice, he says, the abundance and overflow of it, that is of malice, which arises from such an evil heart where wrath prevails and governs. So basically, Gill kind of splits the middle here and he takes both. He says that the filthiness deals with such things as evil speaking and wrath. And then he goes on to talk about the naughtiness there again, dealing with the idea of malice. But the point of this is, and I think he's correct, that it all goes back to the original part of the context of that stuff which is worked out of wrath. Sinful wrath, sinful anger. Now, we can be angry and we can be wrathful where it's not sinful. But sinful wrath and sinful anger... Brethren, is not good for the soul. It does bear its fruit. It doesn't just lie there dormant, oh, he's mad today, or oh, she's mad today, or oh, she's mad tomorrow. That's not the point. There is stuff that flows from this evil of having this sinful wrath. And so whether we want to look at this now as just some general exhortation, lay aside, and he does use the word all there, all kinds of filthiness, all types of filthiness, And then secondly, also lay apart the naughtiness. It really won't matter because really, the wrath of man works that stuff. This is what's the byproduct of sinful, wretched wrath of man. Go over to uh, 1 Peter and we might see something of a parallel here. 1 Peter, just the next book. Chapter 2. Now, again, it's amazing. The context, immediate context is what? The Word of God. Paul, or Peter here in verse 23 says, "...being born again in chapter 1, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away." But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He's talking about here the new birth and the means by which you are born again. We mentioned that last time and the times before that James says 
that the new birth is accomplished through the word of God. That is the preaching of the word and in particular the gospel according to Peter in verse 25. So the context is the same, isn't it? And then he gives in chapter 2 in verse 1, Wherefore, notice this, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So it seems like a parallel here, doesn't it? So Peter expounds further that the idea of the filthiness and the Superfluity of naughtiness could be the idea of malice and gal and hypocrisies and envies and evil speaking. All of that, of course, again, is the byproduct of wrath. Go to the book of Proverbs and see the warnings over and over again about anger, sinful anger, and sinful wrath and the things that it bears. So there's a good possibility then it's still dealing here in the realm of the, uh, the tongue and the anger and the wrath that can flow from the heart in regards to that. Either way, though, either way, however we look at it, whether filthiness is dealing with sexual sins or any other kind of sins, and then the naughtiness is dealing with something in particular, either way, whether it's dealing with specifically or whether it's dealing here generally to all sins, the point of the matter is, is what? Lay them aside. Remember, Jane, or Peter says, In uh, 1 Peter 2, wherefore, laying aside. James says, wherefore, lay apart. We are to put them away. The idea behind this laying aside is like, well, you saw it, well, you didn't see me tonight, today, because I was praying when I took off the jacket. Normally, I get warm up here and you see me just literally untaking my jacket off and I hang it up and I put it away. And then I get back to business. Well, that's the idea that James is expressing here. We are to take these kinds of sins, whether generally or specifically, the wrath and that sort of thing, we are to literally, as it were, take them off and set them aside and then get back to business. We are to do that. And so the idea here is means to put it away. Or basically, very simply, stop it. Stop doing these things. Quit it. You know, you don't need to sit three months on a couch having your pastor talk to you about why and the wife wars of putting away anger. Just the fact of the matter is, do it. Stop it. That's what we're to do. That's how he deals with it here. Now, it's true there are some motivations here. The new birth, the grace of God and saving us, His sovereign grace and will towards those who are elected and finally brought unto Christ. Surely those are great motivations and things to move us on. Even the power to put away sin comes in the new birth as that there is an implantation of new life. Well, we still have to do it. So put it aside. Put away these things. Put away filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Stop it. Suppress those passions that you have by the grace of God and lay them aside. Peter says it this way again a little further down in chapter 2. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul abstain from them. You know what that means. Stay away from them. Stay away from the things. Stay away from the temptations even that can bring these things. 
Paul says it another way in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. Kill them. Colossians, again, Paul really uh, speaking that, tells us in Colossians 3, oh, went too far. And verse, beginning in verse 5. Now here we see some exhortations. Why? Because we, have, we are seated now in Christ, our union with Him in heaven. And he says, therefore, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Kill them. Mortification, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things, the sake, the, which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. And then he says, now do this. But, but now put off all these. Anger. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another. So we're to mortify these things as well, Paul says, to abstain from them and to do away them. So that's the negative. I call that the negative exhortation. Stop doing these things. Stop getting in situations where you would be tempted to do these things. Put away the tongue at times that can somehow stir you as you're talking. And then next thing you know, you're full of wrath, as we mentioned last week. Be a good hearer. When you're a good hearer, you will be slow to wrath. And you will be slow to speak. And we talked about that last time. Well, the second point now of our text is the positive side. And that is to receive the Word then with meekness. Notice. We're to lay apart all, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and now receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So now we see the positive aspect of this exhortation. The negative was to put away. The positive is to receive. And there's two points in this, or at least two. First of all, he says, receive the word, or uh, yes, receive, receive with meekness the engrafted word. The word receive simply means to believe it. The idea you receiving Christ, as John talks about it in John chapter 1, just simply means to believe. Now, we don't mean a simply believe in the idea that, oh, you can just do it at your will. No, this is a spirit-wrought thing. It's done by the grace of God. But the point of the matter is, to receive something is to believe it. Hopefully, you're receiving the things I'm telling you today. In other words, you're believing these things that I'm talking about. You have to hear it. You have to think about it, that is, as you're hearing it. And then you receive it. You believe it. And this was the, this was the attitude of the Thessalonians there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And verse 13, it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So James' exhortation of to us here is to receive it, to believe it. Next thing, well, think of the Bereans. There's a good example in Acts 17. They received the Word of God. They heard Paul preaching. They received it. And then they went home and checked it out. Notice they received it before they checked it out. That's the way you do it. 
It's not. We would think the opposite, wouldn't we? Well, let me check it out. Then I'll believe it. No. James, or excuse me, or Luke here gives the commendation to the Thessalonians that they received it first and then they went home and studied to see whether these things were true. Now, obviously, there's a bit of a trust there with those who are standing before you in preaching. And so I hope you've gotten past that with me already. You can trust at least in some form, some fashion, what I am saying. Obviously, when you're looking right at it in the Word of God, hopefully you can, I'm not lying to you when I say, brethren, you need put away filthiness and all superfluity of naughtiness. And you need to receive the Word, to hear it and to believe it. Be like Bereans and search this stuff out. And then notice the manner in which the Word of God is to be received. How is it to be received? He tells us, we don't have to guess, and receive with meekness. Meekness. Meekness meaning here gentleness. There's a humility about it. Again, if you look, go, go back and see how the Bereans received the word as Paul preached. You see a you see a people who were given over to the word. You see a people who were sitting ready to receive. It wasn't, I dare you to bless me, I dare you to preach the word to me, or I'm not going to receive it until I know this is a fact. It was none of that. They were like uh, the household of Cornelius when they sat down before Peter. We are here to hear what God has to say. Brethren, that's receiving the word, you see, with meekness. It's the very opposite of a proud, know-it-all individual. You ever dealt with people like that? Like on the job, you try to explain, oh yeah, I already know all that. Then they go do it and they screw it all up. Because they just wouldn't listen. They really didn't hear. They thought they already knew all the answers. If they would have just have listened, humbly received what the person was showing them, then everything would have... You know, that's a lot like my job here. I preach. Some of you, yeah, I already know that stuff. And then you go on and you do the very opposite of what's been commanded. It's like, didn't you listen? Were you so hard-hearted? Were you so proud in your spirit that you wouldn't even give consideration to what your pastor had to say to you? Who labors over you, prays for you, has your good looked out over you? You wouldn't listen. And then you go off and do the very opposite of what you've been told. How that grieves those who labor over you. Brethren, if you want to receive the Word and do it properly, then receive it in meekness. In meekness. Notice again that Paul going on with some of those uh, list of the do's and the don'ts there in Colossians chapter 3. And verse 12 of that same chapter says, Put on therefore... Now, this is how he's going to describe you. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and so forth. To be a good hearer, brethren, and to receive it properly is not the heart that says, don't, you know, you can't teach me anything. I already know it all. I've studied my commentaries before I came here. I already know what all the, uh, that I need to know here. No, brethren, that is not meekness. That's a proud, stubborn heart. 
that doesn't receive the Word of God. And most likely, you're a very angry, wrathful individual. Because that's what the context is, isn't it? The very opposite what we need to be. So the exhortation, brethren, is to receive the Word with meekness. And then notice what? Well, we already said it's the Word. But notice how he terms it here. The engrafted Word. The engrafted Word. This is another one of those vivid uh, illustrations or images that James gives us throughout this book. And here he calls the Word of God, the Scriptures, the engrafted Word. Now, the Bible has many terms that it calls itself, many terms in the Scriptures regarding the Word. It's, uh, it's called, uh, for instance, a stone. It's called a hammer. It's called food. It's called the law and so forth. Well, here it's called the engrafted Word. The engrafted Word. That's closely related to, for instance, the Bible being called a seed. Remember the parable of the sower? The sower went forth sowing his seed in the Scripture. Jesus says, and the seed is the Word of God. So we have uh, farming here in view. That kind of an idea. And so it's closely related then to the Word being, like I said, as a seed in that parable. Here... Engrafted carries the idea of taking you, like you do on a farm, if you have fruit trees, for instance, you take, and I don't know how this works because I don't do it, you have uh, this kind of apple tree in this part of your yard and another kind of apple tree, they'll call them green apples over here and red apples over here. You have these green apple tree, this green apple tree, and you take part of the branch and you cut it off at a slant and then you go over to that red apple tree and you knock cut a little carving out of it, and then you take that branch that you cut off from the green one and put it on the red, and then you tape it up so that you can have green apples growing on that red tree. That's called grafting. I've never done it, but I've heard that's what that's called. Brother Jones may have done some of that on his farm. I don't know. I think my folks have done that sort of thing. Well, that's kind of the idea that James is talking about here. So think of it. In that vivid illustration, what is he trying to say? The idea of taking green apples and putting them on a red... That's not really what he's saying, but he's illustrating. He's saying here, you take the Word of God that has this property of becoming a part of you. It's engrafted in you. So literally, it becomes, as it were, a part of us. That's the word. That's the phrase. It's become a part of us. The Word of God is engrafted in us. It's implanted and it's there to stay. And what happens when you take that green apple tree branch and you put it on the red one? It's going to produce, isn't it? Well, that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God then will be that living Word to us. It will produce fruit as we obey the commands and the precepts of Scripture. It becomes so attached to us, as it were, it's like a second nature to us. Those of us who are saved. I mean, doesn't the Bible just continually somehow just seem to be flowing in you? It's just always there. And I don't mean you're sitting there to, uh, quoting verses to yourself, but just the principles of Scripture. You know, you 
go somewhere, you realize there's things you shouldn't be doing, things you should be doing, that's because the Word of God is working in your mind and in your heart. That's the engrafted Word. It becomes second nature to us. And thus it causes us then to grow in knowledge and in grace. Back again in that parallel passage in 1 Peter. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the Word, notice, that you may grow thereby. As you drink in the milk of the Word, as a child does milk, what does it do? It causes us to grow. David speaks of it in this light. In Psalm 19, now you may have thought I was going to 119, but really, which does speak of the Word, but Psalm 19 as well speaks of the Word of God. And listen to what he says beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is the word, is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who could understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Notice how David speaks here of the Word. The things that it is, the things that it does, and then its comparisons that he makes to it. And brethren, that's, that's someone who has had the engrafted Word in them. That's someone who has received that engrafted Word. Well, what will be the results? What will be the end of receiving with meekness the engrafted Word and mortifying sin? He tells us in our text, which is able to save your souls. So there's the end results. Here we see the seriousness of all of this, don't we? Here we see the imperativeness of this, the necessity of all of this which is able to save your souls. Not as the ground of our salvation. That's Christ and His blood and His righteousness. But it is the instrument or the means of our salvation. So, brethren, what is? notice here what James is doing. He's showing us here that the Word of God or the Scripture is no simple matter when it comes to our lives. It's not an option, an option for us. The Word of God is not something we can give heed to if we want to or we don't have to give heed to it. We can take it or leave it kind of an attitude. No, James shows us here the importance and the necessity of the Word of God and the life of a true believer. And if you profess to be a believer here this morning, is the Word of God your mainstay? Is the Word of God the thing that you live by? 
It ought to be just as essential to you as food and water. It ought to be just as necessary for you as our meat and our drink. If someone was to take your Bible away from you and never give it back to you, you would literally spiritually starve to death. That's how you should feel. You will if you've received the Word of God with meekness. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan back in the 17th century, was talking about a preacher, and I can't remember who the pastor was preaching at the time, but he said the Word of God had such a, an effect at that day in the services that and the man was preaching about the Word of God. And he was talking, he was standing in the pulpit, and as preachers do sometimes become illustrative, and he was talking about like taking the Bible away from him, and he would run away with it, and, and he wouldn't go to give it back to anyone. He said it had such an effect upon the brethren around them that many were weeping to think that the Bible, which really they had just really started possessing by the time he got into the 17th century. Remember, Rome kept it from them for years there in England. And the printing press and all that being taken, all at about the same time, there just a couple hundred years that they've had. And so the idea of losing the word was just a tremendous blow to them. And Thomas Goodwin, if you ever read some of his works, is about as dry as you can get in some areas. He says on the way home, he literally had to hang on to his horse's neck because of his weeping when he thought about the word of God being taken from him. Now that's not some emotional charismatic that was writing that. This was a stern uh, Puritan. Superlapse. Well, never mind. You wouldn't, anyway, point is, he was a very high Calvinist and, and he was very logical in his thinking. But when it came to this issue of the Bible, it broke his heart to think that someone or something or God could take the Word from them. And brethren, he can do that today. It's only by grace we own Bibles. It's not because there's a Walmart we can go buy them. It's the fact that it's of God's grace we have the Word of God. It's not always been so. So do you see the Bible then as this important to you? Well, let me make some applications in closing. First of all, let me stress the importance of a conscience our conscience, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I want to say. I'm going to put it this way. A deliberate mind-working activity when it comes to our obedience, which is founded upon the Word of God. Let me stress the importance of a deliberate mind-working activity upon the Word of God when it comes to our obedience. In other words... I don't obey just because I think that's what I ought to do. I obey because this is what the Bible says to do. Are we principled like that? Or are we more of, if it feels good, we do it? Or if it's logical, we do it? Do we do it because the Bible... And I'm not talking about the specifics. Obviously, those are principle-based. But when it comes to the plain, known, revealed will of God, do we take our stand upon it? It really isn't let go, let God. Brethren, for us to progress in grace, for us to grow in knowledge and in truth, 
It won't come without diligent heart and head work grounded in the Word of God. Holiness just doesn't happen. It's a work, not only of the, in the soul, but it's a work carried on by the soul. I'm not leaving God out of all of this. God is the one who works in us both the will and do of His good pleasure. But we're the ones who are working. Holy and holiness and grace isn't for the lazy. It isn't for the indifferent. And that's why I asked at the beginning here this morning, how many took seriously what I said last week? And this, this week, you gave some thought of being, what are those three things? Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Secondly, obviously from all of this and from James's context, we cannot grow holy or grow in grace. We cannot and we will not, but by the new birth. Unless we be born again, there will be no life in the soul. Because we are dead spiritually, dead in trespasses and in sins, that we are born this way, we live this way, we've had our course according to the book of Ephesians, our course has been the nature of this world. Whatever it wants, we want. But when salvation comes, we make a radical depart from that. There's a break with sin. But you must be born again. And Jesus explains that to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, well, you mean I've got to get back inside my mother's womb? Jesus said, don't you know these things, Nicodemus? And then he begins to tell him about Christ Himself dying on the cross, giving Himself. And all who believe have eternal life. Thirdly, do not think as well that we can continue in our sinful course and expect to receive the Word of God. Notice the connection in verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive the, with meekness the engrafted Word. If we're not doing the first part, don't expect the second part to take place. Back over again in Peter, where he says here, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, do you think we're going to be desiring the sincere milk of the Word and growing if we're not putting aside these sins? See, brethren, there's a connection. We cannot be worldly-minded all week and expect to have benefit in God's house and when we sit down and read our Bibles, just turning that off and then going back to the Bible. It doesn't work that way. We better be mortifying sin continually and constantly if we expect to receive the Word. Sinful passions must be seriously dealt with in our lives if we expect to grow in grace and to prosper in the things of God. And then the fourth thing is meekness. Meekness. How many come to hear with this spiritual grace upon them? How many come into this place with the ornament of meekness about them? You know, we'll be busy in the morning getting our ties on, getting our clips on, 
getting our jackets on, ladies getting their hair done, all of those kinds of things so that we can look nice when we come to the house of God. And I'm all for that. I don't think we should be slobs when we, when we appear publicly before God and before God's people. But what is really important is the inward man. And are we being diligent about putting on the grace of meekness? Do we come with the attitude, I know it all, and you're going to have a difficult time teaching me because I already know it all? See, meekness, brethren, as I said earlier, is just the opposite of a proud heart. It's the opposite of a quick tongue and... No, excuse me. It's the opposite of a slow tongue and slow to wrath. Did I get that right? Yes. Meekness is just... Let me read my notes. Meekness is just the opposite of a proud heart, a quick tongue, and a quick to wrath. That's it. Got it. <laughs> Lose the effect when you mess up like that, don't you? The point is, I hope you see, that if we're proud-hearted and we're always quick to speak and slow to hear... We're not going to be meek. Those are not signs of meekness. And we need to learn, brethren, that we are here to learn, to be taught, to listen, and to give ourselves over to biblical authority. One of the things I tell people when they want to become members here, we're not here for you to teach us. We're here to teach you. So don't come in expecting to be our Lord and come in and expect to be our great teacher. We don't know you. As far as we know, you know nothing apart from grace. And so, listen. Learn. Some are quick to correct, but slow to correct their own sinful practices. And as a pastor, I know that. I've had people correct me very quickly. But they're awful slow correcting their own faults and sins. Fifthly, what should we think of those, or maybe those of you here this morning, who do not listen to God's Word? What should we think of those of you who refuse to listen to the exhortations, who, list, who refuse to listen to sound counsel, who refuse to listen to God through the Word of God itself. What should we think of you? Should we think that all is well with your soul? Should we think that all is well between you and God? I don't think so. Listen to what God has to say about this matter in you listening and listening properly. He tells us a very severe warning. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you, because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when fear cometh. When your fear cometh as a desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall you call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but I, they shall not find me. For that they have hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of the Lord, 
They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. What should we think of you, my friend, who doesn't give heed to the Bible? We'll think of you as the Bible thinks. You're a fool. And your day of destruction is coming. And God will laugh at your calamity. And you will cry out and He won't hear. Can you imagine that? So now is the time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Trusting in Christ. Realizing that Christ has become the sin bearer of sin. And he took the punishment that sinners deserve. Believe that truth. Turn from your sin. And you have everlasting life.